Hello everyone, how are you doing? Um, thanks very much for joining me on Coastal Catch-Ups. This week is a slightly different, so I'm not interviewing a person, I am interviewing myself. So it's partly because I didn't have anyone this week, um, so I thought I'd do something instead to fill the gap and the idea I came up with is I'll interview myself. So basically what I've done is the past five ep episodes, I have asked myself questions about the conversations I've had with people. So I thought, yeah, I'll record it, share it. Um, so it means I'll go into a bit more detail and some of the stuff I've chatted about. Um, maybe some other different views, stuff like that. So. Um, I hope you find it interesting and it'll give a good summary of the last five ep episodes. It's all about Marie and the coastal sea Aquatic life and everything in between So sit on there and take a seat Coastal catch-ups I'll start off just by telling you a bit about myself. So, my name is Sam, as you know, uh, but I have been working as a marine scientist now for uh, coming up to two years. Um, before that, I was a general environmental scientist, so I did, it wasn't necessarily marine work. Um, I basically worked for uh, a consultant, so we did environmental impact assessments. So if there's any development, we would look at uh, the impact it would have on particular environmental receptors. Um, but no, like I say, I'm working more in the marine sphere of things, um, mainly looking at the physical processes um, of a marine environment. So looking at tides, uh, waves, um, sediment transport as well so like the likes of erosion um or build up of sediment so um more down the lines of the physical processes rather than um ecology now i do have a bit of ecology experience so i'm a certified marine mammal observer so basically um particular development developments will require uh mitigation to be put in place so say they're drilling a hole in the middle of the sea and it makes vibrations uh they require someone to make sure um there's no uh whales or whatever um around the the working area because um underwater noise and vibration can cause serious harm to uh, marine mammals because they use up for locating prey migrating as well i am also a sailor in my spare time uh me and my brother i'm lucky to sail with my brother in a two-man racing dinghy um, we do that around the coast of Northern Ireland. Uh, we've also travelled a wee bit doing that as well. So we're over in Cornwall there for a big event. Um, so it's a great way to see the world as well. Um, and it's great fun. So I've been doing that more or less my entire life. Uh, since I, I think I started sailing when I was probably, I want to say eight. Um, so I've been, I've been a user of our coast my entire life. Why did I start the podcast? Um, I wanted to do something a bit more creative. So in my job, it's very uh, following guidance and 
protocols and doing things and it's I just needed to do something that kind of educated me but also educated other people so I thought by talking to other experts in the area I thought I could gather up information digest it send it out to you guys listening now um, a very broad topic about the marine environment, coastal environment um, and yeah just discussing all the topics there is and there's so much I think I realised that when I started asking people and searching for people it's um, uh, for example the offshore wind industry at the minute kicking off um, you have conservation um, you have the people that rely on our coastline and seas to actually live um, make a living if they're fishing uh, if w whatever else so um yeah there's certainly a lot going on and i think it's it's good in the sense that i'm not going to be stuck for people to interview so hopefully um uh, i can get loads more interesting people on and by saying that as well if you are interested in coming on if you are listening and you think you could, you've um a good story to share or whatever please message me like it's uh uh, please, please do. Um, it'd be great to hear from you, and um, I'd love to chat to you. Enjoy speaking to people as well, um, and hearing their stories. So um, I'm kind of killing between educating myself, educating others, and um, actually enjoying the actual process of talking to someone and listening and learning. Um, yeah, I'm pretty happy. So long may I continue. I was always quite quiet so um if you probably know me outside this I, i'm quite a quiet person um yeah this is probably not if you don't know me that well you're probably quite surprised in seeing me doing this but i think i'm when it comes to topics i'm interested in i really i, I suppose i'm quite not vocal but i definitely have more opinions and willing to chat about them so um if you ask me about football, I probably would give you one sentence. Whereas if you ask me something about uh, the challenges of implementing uh, sustainability around our coastline, I'd, I'd talk to you for a good hour, um, probably more. So uh, yeah, I think it just depends on um, what I'm what I'm talking about. And I'm I, is that called selective hearing? Is that selective hearing? So. Uh, yeah, maybe I'm guilty of that. So if someone asks me something I'm not interested in, I'll ignore it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, by doing this, I kind of feel a bit more energetic and energised doing it. So I love doing it. So um, it's all good. And then the general theme of the podcast is, I suppose, sustainability of our coasts and oceans. Um, if you don't, sustainability is a term thrown about quite a lot. Um, probably... Uh, it could be used incorrectly at times. It's more to do with, well, in my in my view and what I've read and understood. So you've three pillars of sustainability. Uh, you have inv the environmental side, uh, you have the economic side, and you have the social slash community side. Uh, the good thing about about the last five episodes is I've been able to kind of touch in a bit of everything. So uh, the environmental side, for example, the conservation stuff with Dr. Rachel Miller. Um, community stuff um, I got to talk about uh, volunteering and blue uh, prescriptions with Paul Stewart at Castle Espy so getting people outside involved good for their mental health 
um, and then the economic side, for example, with Thomas Davies with the offshore wind stuff. So it's quite nice to see those three pillars being drawn into all my chats. So, um, yeah, um, hopefully I can continue to do that. So, like I say, I'm going to start by asking myself a couple of questions about um, the guests I've had on. Um, the first one, guest I had, episode one, uh, Rory Martin, the guinea pig. Uh, Rory owns Strangford Lock Activity Centre um, and he's been running that for a couple of years now. How do I know Rory? I know Rory's brother quite well. Um, and I was actually sailing with his two brothers last night. Um, so I was always aware Rory was doing what he was doing. Um, and he, his company is based near where my mum and dad lives. So um, I was always a watch. I could always see uh, the activities and stuff he was doing. So I thought he would be a good guy to nab um, to do the first uh, podcast. So if you haven't li listened to that, uh, you can go check it out. What do I think of Rory? Hmm. No, I'm not. I'm not slate you. Uh, Rory's a really good lad. Um, I've, I've the more I've got to know him the past couple of years, the more um I understand his passion for driving um environmentally aware practices and all the stuff he does. Um, primarily for I suppose educating the people that come on to his activity courses when they're paddleboarding, kayaking, teaching them how to view wildlife safely, doing uh paddling with a purpose so going out to islands and doing litter picks so the more I've more I've heard about it the more I've uh, respected him and I've really admired his company and how he's um, pushing it forward so um, I hope I can see that and I'm sure I will continue into the future. I asked what are the benefits and challenges to tourism so in our chat we talk about these honeypot locations uh, being really overwhelmed because they don't actually have the infrastructure to cope with the increasing amount of uh, people visiting these sites. I think from Rory's perspective anyway, if people are coming down and maybe they've got their confidence up with getting out in the water, kayaking, whatever it is, um, I think from his perspective, and he's definitely doing it, um, is educating them. So educating them how to, um, how close should they get the seal haul out site you know seals breeding with pups like um he mentioned the rule of thumb uh so putting your thumb up making sure the um the animals within your thumb um print you know we techniques like that and i think that's vital so it means when they when they come down next time to view to enjoy the water they know what to do they're aware of these issues um and then they'll spread the message so i think it's kind of like generating just that education and awareness and um, I know the council and stuff have put out signs to make people aware of the animals. Um, but I suppose there's a long way to go. Um, people uh, are just not used to probably being in an environmentally sensitive area. So therefore, should you expect them to know what to do? I suppose not. But it's just trying to get in there before they do anything stupid and educate them. So um, if you're listening to this podcast and you... Uh, if you're thinking about going like kayaking tonight, just just um take care of your what you're doing. You know, be sensitive to um wildlife in the area, um and don't and clean up after yourselves. Leave no trace. That's particularly important. 
I actually saw Rory last night. That's what I was meant to say. Um, he was out with a group of 20 people. Um, we were out sailing last night. I was actually sailing with his two brothers last night. So I saw him, Rory, uh, out with a group of 20 people, um, which was great to see. And they were all enjoying themselves. Um, and yeah, so Rory, if you're listening, um, good luck with the rest of the summer season. And um, yeah, I'm sure I'll see you about. So my next chat was with Thomas Davies. How did I meet Thomas? It was via LinkedIn. Um, I met, dropped him a message. He was an active poster in LinkedIn about the offshore wind and seemed quite passionate about it. So I thought Thomas would be a good guy to get on. Um, and I enjoyed our chat in particular. Uh, so what did I think of? Thomas's career path. So if you haven't listened to that, Thomas went from working for Shell in the Americas. Um, now he's settled in South Wales working for, uh, well, he's working for a company um, developing wind farms in the Celtic Sea. So it was a nice and pretty awesome transition into the new renewable energy industry, um, which I really, I, I thought was cool. He also said at the end of our conversation, because Obviously, the big oil companies and stuff are still going strong. Um, he acknowledged that those big companies are going to be key players probably in the future because they have so much resources and um, money uh, and skills. So no doubt they will play a part in the renewable energy industry once it comes about. Um, so I thought that was an interesting point and it was realistic. Um, I think it's important to know, although there has been problems about the Rosebank oil field up in, uh, I can't remember where Rosebank is, up Scotland direction, must be. Um, there's new applications going in to active, um, activate these new old oil fields and gas and extract fossil fuels. Um, I think it's important to note that Albeit, I don't agree with new oil and gas fields being activated, but certainly oil and gas are still a key player in our um, in our energy industry. So I think if you go on National Grid, have a really cool live viewer, um, and you can see what this what um, percentage of the energy generated in the UK UK is coming from. Um, fossil fuels is still up there, so I think although it's important to cut that fossil fuel percentage down and get the renewables one up. I think that's exactly what we have to do. It can't be uh, turn the taps off and then where's all the energy going to come from? Um, so I think the transition should be quick, but it can't happen all at once. How important is community involvement in the energy industry? I think it's massive. I was reading about schemes that uh, so when you put an offshore wind farm offshore, you, it's not just the wind turbines, you have to get the energy offshore on the land, into the grid, so it can go to our houses and power them. So there's a lot more to it. Um, so the cable landfalls and then there's normally probably like a substation it goes to for it to be converted and directed elsewhere. So communities, coastal communities at these sites will more than likely be impacted and I was reading a good case study these energy developers can provide 
support the communities that um maybe like rural fishing communities or but obviously there's opportunities for um investment and capital investment uh, into the uh, infrastructure in these places so whether it be community centers uh you know things like that so i think there's an opportunity for communities to be involved there but also you have the workforce of all these sites so all these wind farms by 2030 um the ambition of the uk government is to build 50 gigawatts of energy by 2030 which is ridiculous if you consider i think the compact like the total demand of the uk i looked at this last week and it was around 50 so you're basically replacing the entire capacity of the uk grid um in less than 10 years so i certainly think that's ambitious um but here i suppose it's good to be ambitious but anyway all these wind farms are going to have to be built and you're going to need the people to, to go out to sea uh to build these things so i think for example i think there's plenty of opportunity for a new workforce to be skilled up um and these these coastal communities can be part of that definitely so yeah we'll see what happens there and um, thomas also mentioned about floating offshore wind so i actually wrote an article about this uh, after our chat as part of this target of 50 gigawatts by 2030 five gigawatts will be um uh, required to be floating offshore wind and that is um basically these wind turbines are not fixed on the seabed they're floating um, and they're anchored um, in the place so these have the benefit of if you think of really deep water so basically around our coastline the further you go offshore the windier it gets because you don't have um friction from the land you have basically just um it's more exposed but the further you go offshore the deeper the water is so you have problems actually getting if you're to fix the turbine into the seabed it's quite it's a lot deeper so it's difficult um whereas these floating wind farms have the advantage they can be towed out and then these cables can go right down the seabed keep them um keep them fixed in place that means they're offshore um getting more wind creating more energy and more green energy so that's the benefit of that um so the celtic sea is earmarked for a lot of that development so it'll be interesting um to see what happens there um but it's pretty exciting um and they also have the advantage of they can be constructed and i'm pretty sure towed out so there's less faffing about when they're actually offshore so we'll see what happens so my next chat was with dr rachel miller um so how do i know dr rachel miller uh i actually worked with rachel in um the company i'm with now so Rachel worked there for a while, so um, that's how I know Rachel. And then she went off to Ulster Wildlife to do her thing. So um, she is a marine biologist by trade. From speaking to her on my podcast, I think she seems to be in loving life. So that's really um, great to see. Um, will I now eat oysters in a restaurant? <laughs> um, I actually... Not long after our chat, uh, I was out for dinner and I'll not mention the restaurant's name, but on the menu, uh, Native Oysters were on the starter menu. And I was like, no way, very Native Oysters. Can't be, can't be. Rachel's just told me how endangered they are and they're being protected. Couldn't be. 
Um, so of course I ordered one just out of curiosity to find out, but in actual fact, uh, they're Pacific oysters. So um, there you are. If you don't know the difference between your oysters, uh, the Pacific oysters are like the teardrop shape, whereas the native are more flat. Um, thanks, Rachel. I now know the difference between my oysters. How important is community engagement slash citizen science in conservation? So we talked about uh, Ulster Wildlife rely heavily on volunteers. So um, it's really important to engage with the community and get volunteers out to help with projects. This, I think it has the benefits of people like volunteering. Maybe they want to learn more about a particular like Type of wildlife if it is oysters you know or um, maybe it's seagrass habitat um, and like Rachel said in our chat like a lot of these people already are involved in the sea between diving maybe on a boat you know so there's ways for them to kind of tie in what they what maybe skills they have already and what they can help with in the conservation program so I think it's really important and then the other thing I've written here is a citizen science so for conservation to be monitored and actually know things are working, um, you need data, I suppose, and you need to know if populations of species, coverage, um, mortality rates. So if people can be trained up to know or do basic surveying, so in a certain area, uh, and they can record it on an app or whatever, um, it's it would make a massive difference to actually understanding a lot of these species and um, conservation programs in general. So I think it's massively important and um, yeah, I'm excited to see what other programs Ulster Wildlife do and what Rachel um, comes up with. So I'm looking forward to that. So episode four was with John Gilmore. It was great to hear about John's life, I suppose, and his his journey in this sailing and uh, and his observations around across the Atlantic. So, what do you think of John's decision to jump into his first transatlantic? So, John was working in London and he packed in his job and decided to get a boat with his friend and head across the Atlantic. I think part of me goes, it's mad. Um, but like he also said in his chat, if you just have, if you're going to do something like that, you suppose there's never going to be a right time, you know, um, and you just got to do it. So, yeah, I respect it. It's, I think he's actually given me an itch. Um, I kind of want to do something like that now. If my girlfriend and my mum are listening, no. yeah, will hate me for that. But uh, yeah, I think there's something really, yeah brave and courageous about doing that. John's experience, um, he chatted about his first um, stint across the Atlantic and then he also chatted about this most recent one with his family and his observations around the Caribbean once he got there. So it was very interesting to hear about um, the differences he noticed around different islands and um, how Maybe islands have got more affluent and uh, more developed, I suppose, whereas probably other ones maybe haven't. I asked, could I have coped in John's 
encounter with the US Navy. Um, I could imagine the shock of initially realising that you're in the middle of the water and this rib comes up, up to you and you're in an area maybe where there's pirates, you know. That's, that would be frightening, no doubt about it. Um, I like to think I'd remain calm once I figured out who it was, but I suppose you never know until you're in that situation, and hopefully they never will. But fair play to John for keeping calm, and although he did get ang get frustrated and angry at the end and afterwards, but um, no, it's not not an easy thing to do, and uh, I hope I hope um, I think the rest of the trip made up for it. You know, they had a great time with the family together, so they could put that sort of event behind them and move on. Um, but also, John also talked about his when he was heading across the Atlantic the difference in the sargassum weed. Um, so the sargassum weed uh, is there's a, a sphere of the east coast of America. It's, I think where the tide, it must be the tide and the currents. Um, this weed accumulates. Um, and the first time he went across it didn't really I think there was a couple of patches here and there but after uh, his most recent one it was there was loads so this is obviously due to um enrichment of nutrients in the water through agricultural runoff uh maybe particular types of pollution generating this growth of weed and then also the right the increase in heat as well probably plays a factor in the, uh, the ocean as well so the impact of when this stuff washes up the land um it can actually smother everything in its path so and it stinks as well so for tourist sites it's not too good and then for wildlife as well along the coast so um i've i've never seen this stuff um hopefully will one day but um yeah that's it's an interesting observation and then i suppose back home here in northern ireland we have this um blue algae problem at the minute which seems to be on the news quite a bit so increasing temperatures increasing um nutrients in the water causing this stuff um to grow and then um i believe it's the actual bacteria that's what causes threats to um, dogs and I suppose humans as well um but they actually can't tell by just looking at it you can't tell whether it's toxic or not um it's just when it has to be tested before you know so the the safe option is just to avoid it if you come across it um but it's it's nasty looking stuff really is um so where was i so got some weed with john yeah um so yeah really um and I, we chatted as well um about these issues when they're i suppose out to sea and offshore you're not really aware of them because you don't hear about them um it's easy to almost forget like if it if this problem was happening right in our doorstep like the blue algae you'd hear about it all the time but just this stuff is offshore so you don't really hear about it so it's good that john can share this and um share it with us and um uh good in the sense that it raises awareness not good that it's um um happening and then also you have on the other side you have the great specific um Great Pacific garbage patch. Um, I saw an article. There was a guy actually swimming across the Pacific, which is mad as well. Um, but he actually had to stop. I think there was problems with their boat. Um, but 
um, yeah, is raising awareness of, of the problem um, of climate change. So there are people out there raising awareness. I think it's just good to find them and promote them and, you know, um, yeah. I don't know. I, part of me always goes, is raising awareness enough? Like, should there be some sort of action coming from the awareness? But um, it's good probably just to do your own wee bit and become educated. And, you know, if there's anything close to your heart, uh, become a, I suppose, an activist if you want. You know, push for policies, laws, you know, um, anything in, that's close to you. So... Although the world is changing, no doubt about it, I think hopefully nature can adapt and humans can adapt um, and learn a lot of lessons on the way. So I think that's what it comes down to. So my last chat was with um, Paul Stewart, who manages Castle Espy. How did I meet Paul? Again, it was over LinkedIn. I just gave him a message and he was more than happy to come on. So thanks, Paul, for coming on. Um, yeah, it was really great to chat with him question I have here is what role do you think Castle Espy will play in nature conservation? I think it will play a massive role because it, from speaking to Paul, the amount of young children going in the that place to learn from um, maybe with, with their parents, uh, school trips, there is a massive opportunity there to teach this future generation the basics of nature and getting comfortable being around nature and uh, you know doing activities outside and um, inspiring them really so I think that's a massive I yeah it almost goes it's a shame there's only one site in Northern Ireland you know there's plenty of other places that probably could you think of like the likes of up at Loch Foyle uh, you know Carlingford Loch in Newcastle they don't have to be big sites they just have to be somewhere that um, facilitates activities so I, I, I think there's definitely I think more could be done there definitely um, but for anyway for the meantime Castle Espy is a great site for it as well being on the shores of Strangford Lock so Strangford Lock is all the main um, designations because of its habitats and species so um, we mentioned about the Brent geese coming in there. Um, actually saw some the other day, and I think that's early. If there's any bird ex experts listening, um, I know maybe some Brent stay the entire summer if they don't travel and migrate. But um, they flew over my mum and dad's house, and um, I thought it was a wee bit early, like because they normally come over the winter. So, um, and the weather's been quite good, quite warm. So anyway, if you know anything about that, let me know. So anyway, yeah, I think it has a massive role for um, conservation in terms of education and even for adults as well. Um, I know I'm talking about um, future generations, but adults can definitely learn stuff from a site like that. Um, so, yeah, um, we also talked about, you know, Paul mentioned about ecosystem services, not being a big fan of that term. And I, was, I was thinking about this because, and then I was thinking about other ways to say it. So in my mind, Everything's linked, so our human world and nature's linked. And Paul said it sounds like it's transactional, but I think it is transactional. I think there's benefits 
I think there's more benefits from nature going towards humans in the other way, definitely 100%, but I think it is transactional anyway. And I think um, nature provides so many things for us, like clean water, protection against flooding. If we're talking about wetlands, wetlands have so many benefits to you. Uh, carbon um, storage, so um, lots of the grasses in the wetlands, if they um, die and decompose, they can be covered with sediment from the tide coming in and out so that all the carbon gets buried. Um, they can act as buffers um, from storms. They can uh, purify water by um, taking toxins out. So we're so and then providing um, a home for uh, biodiversity as well. So loads of benefits to it. Um, where was I going with this? Ecosystem services, are they transactional? Yeah, I think they are. Uh, I think it is transactional and I think we have a duty as humans as well to give back to nature whatever we can where what I think it's as well helping them helping nature adapt as well I think there's a massive role there for us to do so um yeah I think there's a transa transaction there definitely um do you think blue prescriptions could work so if you haven't heard of blue prescriptions it's basically for anyone suffering from um, poor mental health, they are uh, given volunteering roles or um, activities to do outside. Probably, um, obviously I'm not a doctor, but probably in a group, I imagine in a group setting with other people and making connections with humans and nature. So I think that is, I think there's a massive um, opportunity there. And I think it's, I think anyone, if you chat to anyone who's involved in volunteering outside and um, in groups, like, you know, conservation groups like that, I think the sense of community and um, the enjoyment they get from whatever they're doing, I'd say it's significant. And I think it's definitely um, an important part of linking humans back to nature. I'm conscious that we live in concrete cities now and we actually don't have a, that a lot of us don't access greenery and blue scenes that much and I think it's a key role because at the end of the day that's where we came from we came from live, living outside and you know if you go back in a real um historic way um I think that's where like ultimately where a real connection lies and I think all the social media connecting with people over screens and stuff. I think there's definitely something not not right about it. I think it's good, um, and it's ironic I'm saying this because I'm talking to people over Zoom. But I think your main connections have to be face to face. I, I think that's it has to be, um, and then being outside connecting with nature. If you're help, going back to that transaction thing I'm talking about, so if you're giving back, uh, you know you're doing a bit of good, maybe you're restoring a bit of land and you're seeing wildlife moving in. Um, that does good for nature and it does good for you. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think there's um, lots of opportunities there for the likes of blue prescriptions. Um, and Paul also mentioned about the volunteering opportunities at Castle Espy. So, um, um, so yeah, um, check it out if, if you want to get involved. So, that is the end of my coastal reflection. I hope I haven't bored you to death. I um, hope you find it interesting. I uh, 
just want to say thanks for listening and I want to say thank you to the um, five folks that have been on the podcast so far. So um, Rory Martin, uh, Thomas Davies, uh, Rachel Miller, John Gilmore and Paul Stewart. So I just want to say a massive thank you um, and yeah, I wouldn't have been able to do it without you guys agreeing to give up a, a part of your day. So um, it's really good to have you on. Just before I finish, uh, if you want to stay updated um, on these episodes, you can subscribe to our email newsletter. So I'll keep you updated with any uh, news, um, such as new episodes or articles. So if you if you want to stay, be kept up to date, please uh, check out the website. Um, I'll pop a link um, in the bio so you can access it. Um, so yeah, and then also the other thing is, I think as part of this, I came up with some of these questions but i would like probably to get you guys involved a bit more so if you have a question for someone doesn't even have to be related to one of the podcasts if you just have a question or something about a particular topic we've talked about um please let me know so you can uh message me on socials uh whatever platform linkedin instagram facebook or you can email me at sam at coastalcatchups.com um and that would that'd be great um, because it would be nice to hear what you guys are thinking and um, there's probably stuff I've missed that you guys have picked up on. So it would be really good to hear um, from your perspective as well. So that'll do me. Um, I'm going to get my dinner now um, and I will see you on episode six. It's all about Marie and the coastal sea what it like and everything in between So sit on down and take a seat Coastal catch-ups with a stampede